Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 13, Until We Have Faces. As we continue to move towards the end of book one of Till We Have Faces, which is the majority of the book. Book two is uh, uh, very much shorter, so I'm not 100% sure we're going to spend less time on it for all that. But um, anyway, anyway um, uh, a couple of quick things today. First... It's January 3rd, 2024 in real time here, so happy birthday to the professor today. It's Tolkien's birthday, which is always always fun, broadcasting on Tolkien's birthday. Kind of ushered in Tolkien's birthday last night uh, at midnight here Eastern time um, with the seventh anniversary session of uh, Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, but uh, uh, here, I just wanted to acknowledge it again this evening. I also wanted to remind people of fun stuff that is coming up. Um, so we have a busy moot calendar in the spring. Lots and lots of really fun events. So if you go here to blackberry.signumuniversity.org, you can find the registration uh, for... We have six moots that are currently listed and actually two others which are coming up in the spring which have not even been released yet. So... Um, Lots and lots of, uh, lots and lots of things that are happening here. Of course, our very next moot is Ozmoot down in Australia. Really excited to get back down to see folks again in Australia. We're going to be in Sydney this year um, on uh, from January 26th to 28th uh, this month. You know, middle of summer, um, so uh, that'll be uh, it'll be fun uh, down in Australia. Um, th that's a multi-day moot, so that's going to be like a two and a half day moot. Uh, so lots of uh, lots of stuff to get involved with uh, there, even if you can't make it all the way down to Australia with us. And provided you can you can handle uh, the rather unusual time in which it's likely to be happening in your local time zone, if you are in Europe or America, um, nevertheless, and that seems only just after all considering what the Australians have to cope with when it comes to to, to uh, time zones most of the time. But in any case, it's going to be great fun. Um, then our next moot after that is going to be in February, Sunshine Moot, back down in Winter Park, Florida, near Orlando. Um, always great to get down to see folks in, uh, uh, in Florida down there. Looking forward to that. We have uh, Tex Moot uh, on April 6th down in Houston. There's actually another moot that may happen in between those two in March. Um, uh, we should be able to, uh, to announce this one soon. We're looking at Potomac moot, doing a regional moot in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, which will be cool. <clears throat> and then we're going to be heading to, to the U.K., uh, to York. Um, and uh, we're going to have U.K. moot on April 27th. And then SoCal moot on May 4th in Carlsbad, California, near San Diego. Um, and then also later in May um, is going to be Wild Rose Moot, which uh, is going to be up in Edmonton, Alberta. Um, so that one also, the uh, registration hasn't been open for that one yet, so you don't see that one on the list here, um, but that'll be soon. <laughs> yes, Sarah, there will be, will be a, a certain number of flying miles accumulated <laughs> during, like, from uh, mid-April through uh, uh, mid-May, basically. Um, yes, yes. Um, 
And then, of course, we already have, because they've been waiting for so many years. We've had um, we've had moot down in Carolina before, um, and uh, but they've been waiting so long to do it again. It's been it's been ages. It's been about five years since we've done a moot down there in Carolina, and um, uh, that they're way ahead of the way, way ahead of the game. That's scheduled for November. November 9th, uh, and that's already posted. So there we go. We can you can start planning for the fall as well. Um, but uh, uh, Jackie, you're trying to convince your husband to go to San Diego with you. Oh man, it's so nice. San Diego is such a beautiful city. Uh, really, really fun down there. Totally worth it. Um, <laughs> JJ's joke coming next year. Signum Airline. I um, there is a certain contingent, primarily my pilot and training son who has been lobbying for that for years right um uh so i should probably ask on behalf of my uh son if anyone has a uh an airplane they would like to donate to Sydney university we could put it to excellent use um but um uh i just 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 saying <laughs> that's my uh uh my my son encourages me to um you know get that message out there um <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so anyhow, uh, really fun, really fun moot schedule coming up. As I say, a really, really active spring, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. So, um, all right, let us get back to the story. So, um, do you get a tax rebate for that? Well, not a rebate, a deduction. Yes, absolutely. You would. If you donated a plane, a hundred percent, you certainly would. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no problems, no problems. Um, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, we were, we had just met Trunia. Uh, Trunia had showed up quite providentially. One can't help but notice. Um, there, remember, like the, okay, I'm going to try not to get drawn into Lots of summary from last time. But um, one thing there. Remember when Orawal was descending from the mountain, having had judgment passed upon her, having received the doom of the god of the mountain in their confrontation after uh, Psyche's transgression at Orawal's insistence. And remember that on that ride, she was waiting, waiting to be struck down, wondering, expecting to die, right? Expecting to be killed, or if not killed outright, then somehow made into a uh, made into a wanderer, right? Doomed to wander the world and suffer, as Psyche was apparently wandering the world and and suffering. And so she was just kept wondering, what are the gods going to do to her? And you remember that even after she got back home safely, um, she was continuing to kind of look around her and. She was prepared to interpret almost anything that happened in that regard, right? Like, for instance, uh, you know, was the king going to, you know, uh, kick her out? Or was the king going to die? And then when the king died, the people would banish her. Um, you know, they wouldn't want her to be queen. So they would bring someone else to be king who would then and then she would end up cast out, you know, and wandering the world. Um, you know, th this is like where her mind kept going. Right. What are the gods going to do? The gods hate me. The gods are going to punish me. What are they going to do? And instead, what we see, of course, is this train of events, which is remarkably providential, 
apparently in her favor, right? Um, I mean, when you put them all together, the the good fortune that Orowal experiences after her descent, her final descent from the mountain there, is even more striking than the series of of misfortunes which Bilbo and the dwarves experience in The Hobbit. Um, they, um, uh, they, so Orowal, first remember, the king suffers his fluke accident, breaks his leg, and is bedridden, and looks like he may, he may die of his wound. This is a, an amazing, sudden stroke. At exactly the same time, by coincidence, at exactly the same time, the old priest of Ungit, who may well have opposed Orowal's becoming queen, is also sick and dying, enabling her uh, to, instead of having to deal with the old bird-like priest, um, who everything about him reeked of holiness, right? Instead, she just has to treat with Arnhem, who is a close friend of the foxes and quite uh, positively disposed towards her as well, right? Um, and she's able to strike with him an excellent bargain to allow her to become queen. And as if that isn't enough, right? Um, she goes outside that very night and literally finds the Prince of Fars in the bushes outside their house where she takes him prisoner immediately. And as if that wasn't enough serendipity, he trips on a millstone in the dark and breaks his ankle, preventing him from running away as he was attempting to do. Right? So uh, that's um, that is just a remarkable chain of events. Right? And this, of course, not only the capture of Trunia, not only gives her an opportunity to establish peaceful relations with Fars, their neighbor, the neighboring kingdom, which is very much stronger than they are, um, it not only enables, and not just to establish peace, right, but to create a situation where she can place Trunia on the throne. So the king of Fars will be personally indebted to her, will owe his throne to her, and to Gloom, making transforming the kingdom of Fars from an ally far, you know, like a, a, a not an ally, a, a potential rival far beyond their strength, whom they were always dancing around and concerned about, into the closest of friends, right? Who is actually like in in um, holds deep, deep obligations to them. A relationship which she's then going to solemnize with the with the wedding of Redival by marrying Redival off to Trunium, and making her own sister the queen of Fars. So she now she uh, and to make it even more, it also provides her the opportunity to cement her place in the minds and hearts of her people and nobles and everybody, and establish her as a, a great. A heroic and strong queen from the very beginning. I just the ch the opportunities that she's given and the way that things fall out. It's incredible how she is. Um, how now she um, as um, uh, you know as Sam might say he you know. She takes the chance, right? Uh, I mean, she seizes it in both hands. Um, she, um, 
I'm not trying to take anything away from her own her own work, her own efforts in accomplishing the end, working all that through and accomplishing those ends. And even seeing the opportunity, especially seeing the opportunity to do what she does and becoming the, the, the warrior champion of Trunia herself um, is a stroke of brilliance of policy and personal bravery, I'm not trying to diminish her own role in any of those things. But the opportunity to accomplish all this stuff is just handed to her on a platter, right? With the prince in the bushes and the king's broken leg. I mean, any of those things, if any of those things don't happen and in exactly that timing, um, it's, um, it's pretty remarkable, right? Um, yes, Leaf of Starlight, you are completely right. Uh, she says, I find it interesting in these chapters how Orowal handles the human world so deftly after messing things up horribly in the realm of the gods. Yes, yes, it's very striking. Someone who seemed so wrong-headed in all of her dealings with Psyche, right? In all of the interactions with the gods, as you say, up on the mountain. Um, she has been wise, shrewd, canny, brave, all of these wonderful things, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> JJ says, no, all she needs is for the gods to speak up and tell her what they actually want and she'll be all set. Uh, it's tough but fair. Tough but fair. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, moving forward into this, but I just, I, I want to make sure as we continue, as we go through and we look at some of the passages here, we, we've, we finished in the middle of chapter 17 when she had just taken Trunia in and I was making the parallel to how it was almost, it, it was reminding me of, um, of Psyche being brought in to the house of the god and to the way in which she, Psyche, was trying to bring Orowal into the house of the god as well, right? Um, especially the way that Trunia was brought in veiled, um, faceless. But anyway, um, so we're in chapter 17. Uh, chapter 17, 18, and 19 um, is the whole sequence that uh, leading up to and including the duel, uh, the duel with Argon. Trunia's brother. Um, so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, what are some of these, what are the things that Lewis brings up that he really keeps our focus on um, as we're watching Orwell go through this process? And it's, it's a fun passage. I, I talked about this last time, but it's really striking to me how horribly Orwell acts and how easy it would be to despise Orowal for how she treats Psyche, how she abuses Psyche um, on, the, on the mountain, um, especially that last time. Um, and yet, I know that I myself fall so easily into cheering for her and being excited for her and being behind the queen. And when she is accepted as queen and, and lauded as queen, I'm, I'm cheering for her. Right? I'm cheering for her. And that, the fact that we shift gears in the way that we do here, Lewis really brings us into, there's a certain jarring quality to it, isn't there? Just as she was jarred 
by the expectation the gods hate me they're gonna punish me I'm gonna be you know I'm gonna be killed I'm gonna suffer like I know I'm just waiting right I'm just waiting for it to come upon me and instead she finds blessing upon blessing and you know good chance upon chance um, and it's jarring it's jarring to her that as she tries to wrap her mind around the fact that she is not only not suffering, not only not being punished, but is being blessed and is apparently thriving. And that is, um, it's jarring to her. It, she doesn't even sort of know how to maintain her own equilibrium through that. And I know that as a reader, I have that same a parallel kind of experience. But I find that Lewis manages it really well. I, I'm going along with it. Right? It doesn't. I, I, I don't feel alienated from Orwell, which is remarkable, um, and um, and I find myself cheering for her at the duel and hooray, she's won and everyone's celebrating and I'm celebrating and then I'm like, it's it's it, you, you have those moments right when reading this when you sort of stop and you're like, wait a second, she was horrible just a few chapters ago. She was horrible and doing horrible things and. Um, and wait, isn't what? What about psyche? What about psyche? And where are we going with this? Right? What's what? What's happening? What's happening here? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, but that's the section that we're looking at today. So let's go back to um, let's go back to Trunia. So this is from the council scene when she and the fox and Bardia are trying to decide what to do, and she proposes the. Um, she proposes the 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 combat, right? Um, they they can convince Fars, they can convince Argan of Fars to agree, they believe, uh, to the single combat, even though he's in the stronger position, stronger certainly than Trunia, who is on the run, right? Um, and stronger, of course, than Gloam itself as well. Um, but primarily because, again, by good fortune, Argan, there's, uh, there are rumors. Argan is fighting for the throne. He's not, he's not made, he's not been made King of Fars yet. He has to finish defeating Trunia, his brother, first, in the little civil war that they have begun for the succession to the throne. And the biggest obstacle that Argan has to getting the throne is his there is a there is a stain on his reputation he's been accused of cowardice and that is something it's very serious in a king right especially in cultures like we're seeing here in Gloam where the king is supposed to like the role of the king is to be leading his people in battle um, the strength of the king in fighting against the enemies of the kingdom is a huge part of what the role is. Think, for instance, of um, if you know uh, if you know uh, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Think about the, uh, the 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 naming of Saul as king, right? Taller and broader than everybody else. This strapping lad who can lead them into battle and who promptly does, right? Goes and routes the the Philistines after he's after he's he's thrown. Um, that's that's uh, that's what it means to be king, right? And you'll recall this is um, 
one of the first objections, like Arnhem says a queen can't lead her her country into battle. And Bardia is quick to say, this queen can, right? Um, anyway, so we can see that expectation, right? And and so therefore, Arnhem can't, or Argon, the would-be king of Fars, can't um, abide. He can't let that um, that accusation of cowardice um, uh, stand. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. She has just turned, Orwell has, has just turned to hinting the final stage of her plan. Not just to get, first to get Argon to agree to the single combat, and then to stand and fight him herself. Which would be... Uh, a complete disaster for his supporters if she were to win. Um, and in which would ensure that he couldn't possibly turn away from it because then he would be ridiculed if he did. Um, she brings it up. Bardia sees exactly what she's talking about and the two of them are discussing it and the poor fox is just confused. I have no idea what you are both talking about, said the fox. The queen wants to fight for Trunia herself, Fox, said Bardia. And she could do it, too. We've had scores of matches together. The gods never made anyone, man or woman, with a better natural gift for it. Oh, lady, lady, it's a thousand pities they didn't make you a man. He spoke it as kindly and heartily as could be, as if a man dashed a gallon of cold water in your broth and never doubted you'd like it all the better. Monstrous! Against all custom! And nature! And modesty! said the fox. On such matters, he was a true Greek. He still thought it barbarous and scandalous that the women in our land go bareface. I had sometimes said to him when we were merry that I ought to call him not grandfather, but granddam. That was another reason why I had never told him of the fencing. Nature's hands slipped when she made me anyway, said I. If I am to be hard-featured as a man, why shouldn't I fight like a man, too? All right. So... Um, a couple, several things here. Um, let's start with the fox. Start with the fox because, so, yes, the grandfather versus granddam thing is a slighting it's a, it's a, a teasing slap at him that he's like an old lady. Um, f she is teasing him for his his fussiness and his modesty. Remember, he's the most. Remember how when she was a little girl, Redival used to like flash her legs, her bare legs, at the fox, just to put him out of countenance, right? Just and he would, he, you know, he would like cover his face and stuff because he was the most modest of of. Of people, um, so yes, he has a, a fussy sense of propriety. It's he's a true Greek in this way. Um, a, that is associated by Orwell with being a true Greek. Um, 
he calls it monstrous, the idea that she, as a woman, would fight in this duel. It's monstrous. And he says it's against all custom and nature and modesty. And it's an interesting little sort of sandwich when she, um, the, the, way, the way he presents that, don't you think? Custom and modesty, right, is, those are purely, like, social constructs. The question is, like, whose custom? And modesty according to whom? Again, the fox is one of the things that has been emphasized throughout the book in connection with the fox from the very his very first introduction is the differences in cultures right the 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 sort of strain between the fox's greek learning and manners and customs and viewpoints and the way they do things in gloom right um so to say it's against all custom and modesty um he is uh, he is here responding emotionally and almost unthinkingly within his own Greek perspective. Nobody else seems to think that, right? Nobody is... Th- people are surprised when she comes out. Her own people cheer. The men of... F- the soldiers of Fars laugh at her, right? It's, it's unusual. It's striking that a woman should come out and fight. But they don't... They're not, like, shocked or disgusted in the way that the fox describes. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that unusual though it may be um, in Gloam, they do not have the impulse that he has here to find it simply appalling that that should happen, right? Um, And... um, But in the middle... Custom and modesty on either side, but in the middle, nature. Against all custom and modesty and nature, right? It is unnatural for her to act like this. And that is the most serious of the statements that he makes. Um, She does not share all of his Greek customs. She does not, Orwell that is, does not, um, you know, rid herself of all of the ways of thinking of Gloam, as we've seen again and again. But she does respect, she doesn't always follow everything he says about uh, nature and the divine nature and things like that, but she respects what he has to teach about nature. And that's why she responds to that. He says it's monstrous, it's against nature. And she responds by saying, nature's hand slipped when she made me anyway. If I'm to be hard-featured as a man, why shouldn't I fight like a man, too? You want to say unnatural? Look at me. You know what I look like. Right? I've not been made like a woman. She takes her ugliness to be a sort of, like, nature's hand slipped. She's a mistake. She's unnatural intrinsically, she argues. And so in acting against custom, nature, and modesty, according to the fox. She's just acting out um, what nature um, what nature uh, 
put into uh, put into play already. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll get to the masks. We'll get to the masks. Um, let's see. Well, oh, yeah, the other thing I was going to say, Bardia. Um, Bardia doesn't respond like the fox. He's not appalled. He doesn't think it's horrible for her to do this. He immediately defends the idea. In particular, defending the idea that she could absolutely do this is not a, a like a crazy suggestion. She could do it too. The gods never made anyone, man or woman, with a better natural gift for it. That's a big statement from Bardia. Bardia is captain of the King's Guard. He is the most experienced soldier in the entire kingdom of Kulum. Right? Um, he is, well, I mean, he'd be like the general of the king's army if the king, A, had a significant army and B, didn't lead it himself. Right? Um, but, um, uh, so, he knows, presumably, what he's talking about. So when he says that the gods never made anyone with a better natural gift for it, for swordplay, he considers Orowal truly gifted. She could be the greatest swords person of any sex, man or woman, that he's ever met. And then he goes on to make the last statement, which she doesn't like all that much. Oh, lady, lady, it's a thousand pities they didn't make you a man. They being the gods didn't make you a man. Um, now, what does Bardia mean by that? Why does Bardia say that? How does, like, can we get inside his head here and follow his chain of reasoning? Clearly, he's not saying it's too bad you're not a man because then you'd be a really good. I mean, you're a pretty good swords swords person right now, but you'd be even better with a sword if you were if you were male. That's not what he's saying. He said just said that she's has a better natural gift for it than any man or woman he's ever seen. Right. Um, so that's not what he means. What does he mean then? When he says it's a thousand pities they didn't make you a man. Um, yes, I, Eric says, if she were a man, she'd be able to fill, fulfill socially her natural gifts. JJ says she'd probably have ended up in the army if she'd had that talent and been male. Um, yes. Well, Emily, I think you could talk about like sort of women having disadvantages and he wishes that weren't true for her, but I think it is a little bit more specific. Like, there is an obvious impediment. It's like, um, I don't know. Haven't you ever known, have you ever known anyone who has an amazing talent but is just not in a position to use it for whatever reason? Because of their circumstances or something? You know what I mean? Like, that, that seems to me on one level what he's saying. Right? Like, 
it's if you were a man, you like there would be nothing there would be no obstacle of any kind, right? Uh between you and um you know, achieve like you could become the greatest warrior of the age, right? But it's kinda hard for you know, as a woman, there are obstacles there, right? Everything would be so much simpler and so much straightforward if you were a male. Um, and yes, Mary, you're right. She wouldn't have to prove herself in the same way. Absolutely. Abs- absolutely. Um, yes. Fan art, yeah, like a gifted artist who has to work to make a living. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, yes, yes. Or, right, or a brilliant person with a horrible family life. Yeah, exactly. All kinds of things like that, right? That seems to be how he's looking at it. Like, but notice how well what he says lines up with what she says at the end. Nature's hand slipped when she made me anyway. If I'm to be hard-featured as a man, why shouldn't I fight like a man too? Nature's hand slipped when she made me. That seems to be almost exactly what Bardia is saying. It's a thousand pities they didn't make you a man. It would have been so much simpler if you had been a man, right? And of course, if we think, you know, I asked if you, you know, know anybody like that who has a talent that just is not able to be capitalized on. But of course, it's even easier to think about this if we think back to societies like this um, where women had no opportunities at all, right? In a, in a society where a woman cannot be in leadership, you know, cannot do, like, just think of how many incredibly brilliant and gifted uh, women never had the opportunity to, you know, make use of the gifts that they were given, right? That's, this is not hard to imagine, uh, really, right? Um, he is saying, yeah, it's just, it's weird. They've given a gift which is normally a masculine gift to a woman. And she, so when she says nature's hand slipped when she made me, again, they seem to be expressing very similar ideas there. Um, uh, why does she take it? So why doesn't she just agree with him? Why doesn't she just agree with him? The way she, she takes this as like a, da- a, as if she'd had a bowl of soup and he dashed a gallon of cold water, cheerfully dashed a gallon of cold water into it. Right. The never doubted you'd like it all the better shows that she understands that he means what the sentence he just said. He means it for like a compliment, right? He is intending to say something nice, essentially. Um, And she's what she's kind of uh, pointing out, right? He spoke it as kindly and heartily as could be. Um, He has no idea how that actually um, uh, how that actually comes across to her and yeah JJ that's exactly it she just got comrade in arms zoned by Bardia exactly why is it like a a gallon of cold water in her soup for him to say it's a pity that the gods didn't make you a man because she very much wants him to see her as a woman. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Bricktails, you're exactly right. I do think nature's hand slipped and it's a thousand pities they, the gods, didn't make you a man is almost exactly parallel. She, she says nature's hand instead of the god's hand. Um, hand because she is talking to the fox, right? She's she's using his vocabulary there because she's responding directly um, to the fox there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, but note that again in both. Uh, okay, sorry, Jocelyn. Sorry, um, JJ was making a joke about being friend zoned. Um, by someone you have a romantic interest in, except of course with Barty, it's a little more than friend zoning her. You can't friend zone your queen, right? Um, it's just the fact that she really wants Bardia to look at her as a woman. She has been crushing on Bardia for a long time. And instead he is kindly and heartily looking at her as a comrade in arms, um, and so whenever he when he praises her, this is a speech which is almost like a love speech, except it's not at all a love speech. It's a sp speech like for an incredibly promising young recruit. Right. Um, she is being praised, but she is being praised in exactly the way that she least wants to be praised by Bardia. Um, she doesn't want to be one of the guys with Bardia. She wants to be... Um, she wants to be uh, she wants to be loved as a woman by him um, yes and she isn't beautiful and will never be a mother um, she wants to prove her worth the way a man would Jackie yeah exactly and yet when he talks to her that way she doesn't want that right we can see the tension there in other words um, yes yes um and yes, I, Carrie, I think you're absolutely right. Um, that's where I wanted to wrap up with this passage. Um, this is another comment for her list of the olive woman that she decides to set aside. Yes. Remember, she wants to not be woman anymore. Um, she wants to damn all that up. Uh, and uh, be something else, right? And we talked about that, how that on the one hand, talking about killing the woman in her it's about her sex and gender and not, right? It's, it's on the one hand, it is about her sex and gender, um, but it's also about just being human as well, about killing her humanity um, as well. But, um, yeah. Anyway, um, all right, let's keep going. Child, child, said the fox, his eyes full of tears. It's your life, your life. First my home and freedom gone, then Psyche, now you? Will you not leave one leaf on this old tree? I could see right into his heart, for I knew he now implored me with the same anguish I had felt when I implored Psyche. The tears that stood in my eyes behind my veil were tears of pity for myself more than for him. I did not let them fall. My mind's made up, I said. 
and none of you can think of a better way out of our dangers. Do we know where Argon lies, Bardia? Um, she sees the parallel. The fox begging her not to risk her life. The fox begging for his sake. This is the closest the fox comes to um, calling in that mercenary army, right, to fight on his side. Um, he's simply appealing to her feelings, to her passion, right? He's appealing to her love. If you love me, don't do this, right? Um, and she... This would be a painful parallel, even if she didn't see it. But she does see it. I knew he now implored me with the same anguish I had felt when I implored Psyche. She sees the role reversal, exactly. And she refuses it. Absolutely refuses it. The tears that stood in my eyes behind my veil were tears of pity for myself more than for him. I did not let them fall. Why? Why doesn't she give in in the way that she wanted Psyche to give in when she sees the parallel? Why doesn't she give in? She has tears of pity for herself more than for him. She thinks back to her own anguish when she implored Psyche. Yes, Yero, I agree. Because she's killing the woman in her. She is... Punishing herself vicariously, in a sense, I did not let them fall. Remember that metaphor of the dam, right? Um, the dam here is almost literal, right? Literally holding water back, um, holding her own feelings back. And yes, Eric, it would mean acknowledging the validity of Psyche's position. Yes. Um, but by the way, do you notice what has just happened? She also shall be Psyche. Right? And she sees it right away. But she won't. She won't go there. You might think a line of reasoning that said it almost destroyed me that Psyche would not have pity on my anguish. I know what the fox is going through in this moment. So I will not be, I will not do to him what Psyche did to me. Right? Um, but she doesn't do that. She does the opposite of that. She deliberately, knowingly recapitulates it. And again, I think it's because she sees the parallel. He 
is just like I was. And that per the person who is in the Orwell role deserves to be punished, right? Does not deserve to be. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a big part of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, curious chance, that's, that's an interesting point. On the one hand, um, it's kind of true that her life is not her own to do with what she wants, and she has a duty to gloam, the same as Psyche had her own sense of duty. The parallel to her and Psyche is a legitimate one. In fact, Orwell's going to make it explicitly a, a few slides down the road. Um, so that's a legitimate parallel. But on the other hand, there are good reasons of policy for her not to do what she's doing. Remember that one of the comments that Bardia made that the fox wasn't following was saying that he was too good a player of chess to hazard his queen, right, on a gambit like this. Um, there are good reasons, especially since even just in the initial exchange with Arnhem, the new priest, um, or the almost priest at that point, there was good reason to see that she is likely to be a good queen and a far better ruler than her father was. Um, she has potential. The number one duty of her and for her to stay alive and continue ruling. Um, as the fox had said, the, the stratagem of a, of, a, of a duel is a good one. But is this last step necessary? I mean, it works out. It's not like it's a horrible idea. But I, I can't think we could actually argue that her duty to gloam mandates this. You could easily make an argument that says um, she's playing a little fast and loose with her duty to gloam in proposing this in the first place, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, Her, the complete, the damming up of the emotion, the flatness of her response, the absolute authority of her response. My mind's made up, and none of you can think of a better way out of our dangers. Um, shows is another example, as we were saying before. Orwell is being shut away. This is the queen talking. Um, right. And she goes on to this. To speak of this division more openly. She goes out. She's standing by herself. To be alone there and in the silence was like coming suddenly under the lee of a wall on a wild, windy day, so that one can breathe and collect oneself again. 
Ever since Arnhem had said hours ago that the king was dying, there seemed to have been another woman acting and speaking in my place. Call her the queen. But Orwal was someone different, and now I was Orwal again. I wondered if this was how all princes felt. I looked back on the things the queen had done and wondered at them. Did that queen truly think she would kill Argon? I, Orawal, as I now saw, did not believe it. I was not even sure that I could fight him. I had never used sharps before. Nothing hung on my sham battles but the hope of pleasing my teacher. Not that that was a small thing to me either. How would it be if when the day came and the trumpets had blown and the swords were out, my courage failed me? I'd be the mockery of the whole world. I could see the shamed look on the fox's face, on Bardia's. I could hear them saying, and yet how bravely her sister went to the offering. How strange that she, who was so meek and gentle, should have been the brave one after all. And so she would be far above me in everything, in courage as well as in beauty, and in those eyes which the gods favored with sight of things invisible, and even in strength I remembered her grip when we had wrestled. She shall not, I said with my whole soul. Psyche, she's never had a sword in her hand in her life, never done man's work in the, pillars, in the pillar room, never understood, hardly heard of, affairs of state, a girl's life, a child's life. <laughs> Brick tells it's a really good point. She did use sharps once before when she stabbed herself in the arm. Right. Now that's not sword fighting, right? But uh it is um it is an important uh an important distinction. Um Yeah. She's still comparing herself to to Psyche, still bitter. Um Notice how this sense of rivalry with Psyche now seems to be growing. Remember how firmly, in fact, immovably, she thought of Psyche as a child before. She was locked in the relationship of daughter to quasi-mother, right? Um, she was resentful of the idea of Psyche growing up, right? Um, and one of the things that we, I think, are seeing more clearly about Orwell now, and which perhaps geriatric Orwell, as she writes this, is seeing maybe a little more clearly now, is one other of the reasons for that. Why did she cling to this relationship, this mother-daughter relationship with Psyche so irrationally? Was it just because they had been happy and she wanted that happy time to continue? Yeah, I'm not saying it's not true, right? But what else? What did we see in the later conversations on the mountain? with Psyche. We saw Psyche grown up. Psyche become an adult. Become a, a wife. Not a virgin anymore. Becoming her peer. More her sister. And less her daughter. And this, of course, is what always happens when children 
grow up, right? It is true that persisting in thinking your grown children are still babies is sort of a mom thing. That's true. But um, to... And of course, mother and daughter, when they're both grown up, are never exactly like sisters, right? Um, but there comes a time of greater equality between them. And what happens for Orwal? What happens if she and Psyche, if Psyche is not her daughter, not below her, not, you know, loved, cherished, held forward by her, but instead stood next to her. And now the two of them, grown women, sisters, standing side by side. Um, well, then what you have is a huge contrast, right? Between hideous Orowal and beautiful Psyche. Psyche, who is best at everything, which becomes like, notice how when that person is your child and you are kind of claiming them, the glory for what they are shines on you, right? To have the most beautiful daughter in the world is a glory, right? To have the most beautiful sister in the world is a problem, right? I mean, that's, um, uh, Remember that the um, uh, remember that the king saw this. Remember when she was begging for Psyche, and the king was like, "You can't actually like. There's something going on here. You can't actually care about your beautiful sister that much. Um, surely there's like some rivalry here, and therefore some scheme on your part, right?" Um, <laughs> Morgul answer says, facts, my sister was a model. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So you're saying that you're familiar with the having a really beautiful sister thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but um, uh, when Psyche, as Psyche has moved, as Orwell has lost the mother-daughter concept, right? As Psyche has forced her way out of that category. First, by leaving home. <laughs> some leave home to go to college. Some leave home to be uh, a, a human sacrifice. It happens in different ways and different cultures, but as Psyche has left home, she has gotten married, right? She has um, uh, she faced Orowal as an equal, and Orowal remembers those things, even the strength of her grip. Right, she's her, her equal now, even in strength. She has been given all of the things, right? Um, and now, Orwal is merely 
overshadowed. Think about it, even the dooms that were laid upon them by the god has have served to put them side by side. Right? You also shall be Psyche. Psyche has gone forth. Right? You also shall be Psyche. Um, we've never seen the rivalry this clearly before. It was there. We saw hints of it before. The rivalry, the even the inclination to resentment of Psyche. Um, now remember, this is her as Orwal speaking. This is, she is perceiving this division between the queen and Orwal. And we must remember her determination to kill the woman in her and to, um, uh, and, and to, to become the queen, right? Um, she she has now split her own sense of herself. Orwal was someone different, and now I was Orwal again. Now she is she's in Orwal mode. She's she feels herself to be a woman again, and feeling herself to be a woman and and notice all the fears associated with mortality her fear that she's not going to be able to fight him that she's going to fail of her endeavor that she's going to be so afraid that she won't be able to fight him and just in case we were unsure I'm pretty sure I did not quote this later on so I'm not skipping ahead well I am skipping ahead but not to another passage um in the morning on the morning of the fight with Argon Bardia remember takes her aside and says, now don't forget, it's totally natural to feel the fear. You're going to feel afraid. We, everybody does. We all do. I do every time I go into battle. Just, you know, don't let it, don't think it's just you. Don't let it, right? He's cautioning her like he would to any other soldier fighting her first battle. Um, but remember, there's this one thing that Bardia says in the middle of that. He says, um, and the only, I'm sure this probably won't even apply to you because of your divine blood. Right. Because she is something more than mortal. Because Orwal is the queen and divine, of divine blood. She is this automatic machine. She is not human. She is not mortal. She is not weak. Right. Um, those things are some of the things that are separating. But here in, in her Orwal mode, right, she is fearful. Fearful of her fearfulness, right? Thinking she's going to be um, a mockery of the whole world. Shamed before Fox, the fox and Bardia. And then the unflattering comparisons with Psyche. Um, uh, I... So I think it's important to remember that in Orwal's worldview, as clearly in Bardia's worldview, this queen persona also has something of the divine in it. There is a sense in which Orwal's becoming queen, 
the emergence of the queen here, what's happening within her, that there's a kind of, par I'm not at all saying it's exactly the same or going in the same direction, but there's a kind of parallel between what's happening with Orwell here as she becomes queen and what happened when Psyche was brought into the house of the god. Her talk about her shame of her mortality, the way that she was changing, the, the gradual transformation from uh, Psyche, um, you know, from, from the little Psyche that she loved to Istra, the goddess, um, that transition was happening, right? Another transition, which is very much not the same thing, but parallel to it, is happening with Orwell here as well, as Orwell becomes the queen. Um, there are really important differences between those two, but the parallel invites us to see both the similarities and the differences, I think. Um, the number one difference I would point to, this, this would be a whole like paper topic in itself, but um, one quick thing that I would say about that. Psyche found her union with the god to be a bringing together of everything. Right? Remember how her very, her most, her greatest happiness and satisfaction during her mortal life, during her childhood, were those times up in the hills with Orwal and the fox. And remember at those times, that's when she felt the longing most for the mountain and where she would fantasize about the, you know, the, the, the gold and bronze palace on the mountain, right? Um, she feels, Psyche felt from the night before her sacrifice in the conversation they had in the room with five sides, um, felt that in going to the God and going to be sacrificed, she was bringing together the disparate parts of her life, right? That what she was experiencing in her marriage with the God was a union of the human and divine, right? What Orowal is experiencing is a divorce, a separation of the human part of her and the divine part of her, right? This sort of divine, the, the way in which she's experiencing something like that kind of transformation is different and unwholesome. Um, and it's not about the unlocking of new life. It's about imprisonment. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, but nevertheless, an important parallel, I would say. Okay. I went back to the pillar room, for I had thought of something that must be done. Now that my life might be only two days. The fox was already there. I called Bardia and Arnhem for witnesses and declared the fox free. Next moment I was plunged in despair. I cannot now understand how I had been so blind as not to foresee it. My only thought had been to save him from being mocked and neglected, and perhaps sold by Redival if I were dead. But now, as soon as the other two were done wishing him joy and kissing him on both on the cheeks, it all broke on me. You'll be a loss to our councils. There are many in Gloam who'll be sorry to see you go. Don't make your journey in the winter. What were they saying? Grandfather, I cried. No queen now, all Orowal, even all child. Do they mean you'll leave me? Go away? The fox raised towards me a face full of infinite trouble, twitching 
free? He muttered. You mean I could... I can... It wouldn't matter much even if I died on the way. Not if I could get down to the sea. Um... Oh, it's just another beautiful, beautiful scene. Um... Orwell never considered... So, with Psyche, we saw Orwell being tremendously selfish, right? Um, continuously, forcefully, putting her own feelings and her own desires above Psyche's, even though she was trying to convince herself this was for Psyche's well-being. Um... It was not true. Um, and for a moment, it's it looks like she's done a, a selfless thing here. That she's gone in the opposite direction with the fox. But of course, then what we see is it's only because it's only because she didn't even think of it. Because she never even imagined that he would want to leave. It never even occurred to her that he would want to leave. When the other two, who are two of his closest friends in Gloam, right? He and Bardia have a rivalry and argue all the time. But Bardia and Arnhem are clearly two of the Fox's closest um closest friends, right? And they immediately, they don't just imagine that maybe he wants to leave. They assume it, right? I mean, it's what it means. If he's going to be set free, he's out of here. He's going back to Greece, obviously, right? It's completely obvious to them. And Orwell doesn't just believe that he's going to choose to stay. It never even crosses her mind that he would want to go. Um, it, Maureen, you were right. In the end, the result is that it shows how much the fox loves her, that he stays. Um, he can't do it immediately, right? But yes, yes, it does parallel the way she never thinks of Bardia's family life. Curious chance. You're right. You're right. Um, yes, um, she is reminded of that and grudges it, as we'll see, um, but, um, but yes, no queen now, all Orwal, even all child. Notice the sort of spectrum there? Um, to be all Orwal is only one step removed from being all child, right? Um, it just kind of shows you the bucket she's putting Orwal in, what it means to her to be you know, the, the woman she's trying to purge out of herself, right? It tells you a little bit about how she thinks about that. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I agree, Eric. It seems important that so many things sincerely never even occurred to Orwell that we might think should have. It may not be your fault, or it may be partially, but it's a defect of intellect or will or both. Um, yeah, yeah. No, there's... Um, there's... Her blindness, which is partially willful. But as we see here, this is not... This is not just her, I don't know, um, this is not her choosing to not think of this. This is not her choosing to disbelieve Psyche's happiness on the mountain, right? Um, this is a totally different thing. Um, yes, Mary, and I do think that that's a really important thing to keep in mind. The fact that we're being shown all these things by her. Right as narrator, does do something to acknowledge that as an old woman looking back, she gets it a little bit more. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I had no notion how the remembered home looks to an exile. It embittered me that the fox should even desire to leave me. He had been the central pillar of my whole life, something I thought as sure and established, and in, indeed as little thanked, as sunrise and the mere earth. In my folly I had thought I was to him as he was to me. Fool, said I to myself, have you not yet learned that you are that to no one? What are you to Bardia? As much, perhaps, as the old king was. His heart lies at home with his wife and her brats. If you mattered to him, he'd never have let you fight. What are you to the fox? His heart was always in the Greek lands. You were, maybe, the solace of his captivity. They say a prisoner will tame a rat. He comes to love the rat, after a fashion. But throw the door open and strike off his fetters, and how much will he care for the rat then? And yet, how could he leave us after so much love? I saw him again with Psyche on his knees, prettier than Aphrodite, he had said. Yes, but that was Psyche, said my heart. If she were still with us, he would stay. It was Psyche he loved, never me. I knew while I said it that it was false, yet I would not or could not put it out of my head. <laughs> yes, Jackie says she has some serious abandonment issues and some arrested development. Yeah. And some uh, seriously negative self-talk. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, JJ, excellent. Um... He's noticing she calls Bardia's children his wife's brats, her brats, not Bardia's brats, right? Yes, she's distancing Bardia from his children, right? They are a thing of his wife. Um, you know, they're like, they're practically like instruments that she uses to ensnare him or something, right? Um... And yes, I agree, Mighty Felix, that he'd never have let you is interesting. Um, yeah, I, notice how what she's she's taking the very words of praise he gave, Bardia, right, saying that she could do it, that she could fight Argon, that that, um, and she's now turning around saying, well, if he really loved me, he wouldn't, you know, she's upset that it was only the fox, who was worrying that she was going to die 
right? Who couldn't bear to lose her? It's like she was hoping on some level that when she proposed getting in the combat, he would say, oh yeah, that's pretty boss and you could totally win, but please don't do it because I couldn't bear to lose you if you died, right? But he didn't say that or anything like that because he had totally comrades in arms zoned her, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I see people talking about Orwell's age. What, what did we say? I, I was thinking probably 30, right? I, she was young. She was a kid when Psyche was born. She was younger than the queen, but in the ballpark, right? Um, she, the new queen was like a sister to them, um, but she was pretty young. So I... I th <laughs> yeah, she'd never been pretty anything. Um, I think... So yeah, I... I I would believe that Orwell had to have been well under 15. Probably in the 10 to 15 year old range when Psyche was born. And Psyche doesn't have to be any older than 15, 16. At this point, maybe she's a little older, but she would have been married off, most likely, if she were much older. I mean, the King of Gloam is going to wait until Psyche turns you know, 20, uh, to marry her off. It seems very unlikely in that culture. Um, so, um, so yeah, 25 to 30, I would put 30 as almost something like an upper bound, honestly, because she was definitely not older than, um, Psyche's mom and the youth of Psyche's mom was emphasized. She was a, just a girl, right? Which in this culture means she could have been anywhere from like 12 to 14, basically, I think. Um, uh, so yeah, I, 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 I'd be surprised if Psyche were 20 at this point, and I'd be surprised if Orwell had been more than 10 or 12 when Psyche was born. So yeah, I'd put her at 25 to 30, Orwell, my, my guess, my guess. Um, old enough notice to... be past to have like come to acceptance that she's never going to get married right um, to deem that to be an impossibility um, to have come to grips with that sort of reality right um, yes Sarah you're right um, that it is surprising that Redival hasn't been married off yet. Redival would certainly agree. Remember, Redival's starting to worry she's going to be an old, an old maid because she can only be married off to somebody in the king's line and nobody will have the daughter of Gloom. So um, she, Redival herself, was considering her own self to be like one foot in the matrimonial grave already. So yeah, I think that if, if um, Redival might be 25 herself, right? Um, which is like, I mean, uh, you know, goodness, right? Charlotte Lucas territory, right? So, um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, 
Um, okay. Let's keep going. That night I slept ill. It was not fear of the combat, but a restlessness that came from the manifold changes which the gods were sending upon me. The old priest's death by itself would have been matter for a week's thought. I had hoped it before, and then if he had died, it might have saved Psyche, but never really reckoned to see him go more than to wake one morning and find the Grey Mountain gone. The freeing of the fox, though I had done it myself, felt to me like another impossible change. It was as if my father's sickness had drawn away some prop, and the whole world, all the world I knew, had fallen to pieces. I was journeying into a strange new land. It was so new and strange that I could not that night even feel my great sorrow. This astonished me. One part of me made to snatch that sorrow back. It said, Orwell dies if she ceases to love Psyche. But the other said, Let Orwell die. She would never have made a queen. Let Orwell die. Um, horrible. 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 Um, again, notice the parallel. She... Um, up on the mountain. Psyche's world. Her palace the house of the god that she was invited to come in and be the queen of, um, was torn down. Pillars falling, the landscape collapsing in an avalanche. The whole, Psyche's whole world up there um, fell to pieces. Orwell comes down and finds her world falling to pieces in good ways, right? In good ways. Um, everything about her life, everything about her world has changed. She mentions the old priest's death. How monumental that would have been. What a totally different world it would have felt like living in with the old priest replaced by Arnhem. If that had been the only change that had happened, it would have been a life-changing experience. But to have... But she brings that up to emphasize that that's like the least of the changes. Right? The king out of the way. The fox, not a slave anymore. Right? I mean, just like everything is different. Right? Everything is different. Um, and she attributes it to the gods. The manifold changes which the gods were sending upon me. We have to keep in mind, and it's hard, I think, during this passage of the book, but we have to keep in mind her attitude towards the gods. That's a little flag there at the beginning of that paragraph. A restlessness that came from the manifold changes which the gods were sending upon me. What do the gods do to her? The gods who hate me 
right? Um, she is writing this book in complaint against the gods for what they have done to her. So this is not a question, and we can't let ourselves get drawn into thinking of this as this whole se se sequence, I mean. I was emphasizing at the start what a, an incredible series of blessings have been poured out upon her all of a sudden. But when she contemplates them, that's not what she sees. That's not what she thinks. Changes, yes. Turning of the world upside down, yes. But not... But she is writing this book as an accusation against the gods. She is not thanking them for their blessings to her despite what happened. This is part of the accusation. This is part of the accusation. Um, and that's the thing we have to remember, right? Um, Orowal, geriatric Orowal, does not see the pouring out of blessing, her becoming queen and everything that all the, uh, you know, all of the good fortune that accompanies her becoming queen. She doesn't see that as a blessing. She sees it's part of the indictment. This is part of the indictment. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why she's talking about, she's relating to us about the Queen and Orwell, right? Um, she's not just telling us about what she did. She's telling us about what has been done to her. Um, let Orwell die. She would never have made a queen. Sarah, I think you're right. Um, Sarah's talking about how this is another way for Orwell to believe that this new persona is actually a different person, the queen. A way to distance herself from the her, from the her before when she caused all this hurt to Psyche. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maureen, I agree. The Orwell versus the queen and Orwell versus Psyche uh, connections. Um, and even like queen and Psyche. Right again, like the queen and Psyche is the two divine ones, right? Orwell and Psyche is the two human ones and their human relationship. Um, it's really complicated what's happening. But also, again, we have to not only just kind of sit back and do our own psychological analysis of Orwell, um, but also listen to how she frames this herself. And I think the biggest hint here in this paragraph is that reference to the changes which the gods were sending upon me. This is something that has been done to her by the gods. She sees that now. Now that she's old, looking back on this, she sees what the gods have done to her. And so we need to make sure we understand it in that way. Getting ready for the fight. People are worried about her being veiled. Worried she's not going to be able to see. When we had brought him into some kind of order, this is the fox who is all fretting about what he's going to wear, right, on this occasion. Um, when we had brought him into some kind of order, then Bardia wanted me to fight without my veil. 
He thought it would blind me and did not see how it could be how it how it could well be worn either over or under my helmet. But I refused altogether to fight bareface. In the end, I had Pooby to stitch me up a hood or mask of fine stuff, but such as could not be seen through. It had two eye holes and covered the whole helmet. All this was needless, for I had fought Bardia my, himself in my old veil a dozen times, but the mask made me look very dreadful, as a ghost might look. If he's the coward they'd make him, said Bardia, that'll cool his stomach. Uh... So, it's a hood or mask. It's made of cloth. So, if you want to think of it as a fencing mask, it's kind of like that. But, um, so, what he has is, she has a helmet, right? Um, And Pooby, her maid, has stitched up a hood or mask. It's made of fabric, right? It's been stitched by her maid. Of fine stuff. um, Such as could be seen through. So it's over top of the, it covers the whole helmet, it's over the helmet. So she has it like a, a sheet over her head with eye holes cut in it, right? Like a Halloween ghost or something, right? Um, but it's fine stuff such as could be seen through. Presumably that's in case it gets jogged sideways or something, right? And the eye holes don't line up and then she, so she'll still be able to see through it no matter what. Um, uh, yeah, um, but the mask made me look very dreadful as a ghost might look, um, her, so two things here. First, there's this like new layer of facelessness here. Um, this is not just her veil. Um, she is here for the first time. Um, made to look um, uh, inhuman. In fact, like, very dreadful. In fact, she compares herself to a ghost, but, you know, it's it's kind of like she's a monster, which is exactly what the fox said. Monstrous, right? Yeah, she looks monstrous, actually. Right? She doesn't even look human. She doesn't even look alive here. She doesn't just look like a faceless person in a veil so that you can't see her face, but otherwise looking like a woman. Um, she now, in her armor and in her masked helmet, doesn't even look human. Um, so that's one thing. There's this, like, um, continue, continued... Um, reg- oh, I, I, I believe that fine means thin here. Which is of fine stuff, um, uh, such as could not be seen through from the outside, right? That is, it would still veil her successfully. Um, uh, but, um, but it will hide her face still uh, successfully. But it, fine, I'm, I'm almost certain there. It doesn't just mean like fancy or something. It means very, very thin. That's why she emphasizes, but such as could not be seen through. It's so thin, but yet enough to be opaque to the sight from without, essentially. JJ, that is exactly the parallel. Just as Psyche didn't really look human when she was made up for the sacrifice and was masked, remember, with that wooden mask. Um... 
the most beautiful woman in the world covered in a wooden mask and painted up like a doll. Right. As Orwal was painfully aware when she saw her. Um, there was something sort of monstrous in that as well. It certainly... Removed, removed is too strong a word. Displaced, suppressed her humanity, psyche's humanity. I mean, when she was masked and gilded, um, gilded like she was bare-breasted and her breasts painted gold, like the girls, the temple prostitutes in Ungut's house. Um, she was dehumanized. She was made into a symbol. A, a divine symbol, right? A symbol of blessing, of fertility. Just as the temple prostitutes are made symbols and drugged as well, yes. Um, Orwal is in a mask herself that I. All of this stuff, this added stuff about this new apparatus that's made for her helmet and stuff, I, I think is is clearly just simply designed to parallel um, like to for to enable Lewis to say that she had a mask, a dreadful mask, right? Again, to parallel Psyche's mask. Um, she, Orwell is dehumanized too, but the monstrous dehumanization, it's different, right? Um, nature's hand slipped the gods messed up when they made her. She's not right. She's not okay. She's not good. Um, she's less than human. Psyche is masked, and although her mask conceals her beauty, everything that was more natural than nature about her, and yet she's at least being made into a symbol of the divine. Right here, she's being... Orwell's being made into something less than human. Now, it is true that Psyche's humanity was taken from her while Orwell gives hers up willingly, though Psyche did submit to the sacrifice more or less willingly, too. Um, but I agree that there's a different dynamic to it, right? Orwell is not a sacrifice in the same way, though she's going out to die, and even on one level, or a couple levels, um, hoping to die. Um, in this scene, as we'll see in just a moment. Um, but again, Bardia's comment. <laughs> if he's the coward they'd make him, that'll cool his stomach, right? He looks at her, he looks at Orwell, and is like, you are completely terrifying. You are an appalling sight. You are a sight to strike fear into the heart even of a brave man, just because they're going to be horrified to look at you, <laughs> right? Um... Because you are like some specter, uh, some inhuman specter. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Jackie, I agree there is something intriguing about all the fussing they do over what she's going to wear to this challenge. Um, it's also interesting, the emphasis that she makes um, on all the fuss and bother 
how the fight took 10 minutes, but it took 12 hours to get the whole ceremonial out of the way. And again, I think we're supposed to be thinking of the long, drawn-out, dramatic ceremony of the sacrifice of Psyche as well. Um, the ritual element to it, Maureen, absolutely. Again, just in case we, we think of this, you know, lest we be tempted to think of this just as a, a, a fight, a brawl, or something like that, right? This is every bit as much of a ritual moment. It's a different kind, but it's every bit as much of a ritual moment um, as Psyche's. And what was happening there? Psyche was being given to the god, right? Given to the beast to become the beast's bride, or perhaps the beast's dinner, right? She was being surrendered up to the god, the accursed to atone for sin, the blessed to marry the god, um, to restore blessing to the people. And it worked, remember. Uh, it worked a treat. Um, by the way, remember that too. That's the other time the gods just poured blessings down upon Gloam and even upon Orawal herself. All, everything like the rain and the lions and the civil war in Fars itself with Trunia and Argon originally was like a stroke of the gods in blessing in the, all these things which immediately happened right after Psyche was, uh, uh, was sacrificed. Orawal is not being given to the gods, right? She's in this entirely mortal political realm, but she is sacrificing herself too. It's like Orawal is being sacrificed to the queen, in a sense, right? Um, yes, the brute. That's that's what I meant. The brute. Uh, you're right. Be the beast is is too directly parallel to Beauty and the Beast, uh, which Lewis was careful about. Yes, the brute is what I meant there. Um, uh, yeah. Um, again, like when I think about what is being sacrificed to what, it's very different. But yes, Yarrow, exactly. You also sh you also shall be psyche, right? Yes. Um, Oh, Argent Paintbrush, that's really interesting. But she gets the opportunity to be the brute figure, to take her opponent's life. Yes, she's going to devour Argon, right? Um, and in doing so, she is going to be made the queen. The ascendance, the ascendancy of the queen will be complete, right? This will, this act will cement her as queen for life. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yep, Argent Paintbrush, we're going to get there too. Yeah. Um, we'll get there. We'll keep going. We're in chapter 19 now. We're on the move. Several lords and elders waited for us at the gate to bring us through the city. 
it's easy to guess what I was thinking. So we've been, we've been building up to it, right? And now she explicitly makes the connection. So Psyche had gone out that day to heal the people. So she had gone out that other day to be offered to the brute. Perhaps, thought I, this is what the god meant when he said, you also shall be Psyche. I also might be an offering. That was a good, firm thought to lay hold of. But the thing was so near now that I could think very little of my own death or life. With all those eyes upon me, my only care was to make a brave show both now and in the fight. I'd have given ten talents to any prophet who would have foretold me that I'd fight well for five minutes and then be killed. Again, that's what she wants, right? Um, yes, JJ says, some say the ruling and the devouring are one. Yes, yeah, some something like that. Um, yes, um, notice what she's latching onto is the possibility of her own death, which in a way she finds comforting. Just as there was a certain satisfaction in the idea that she was going to get swept up, swept off a cliff on the way down the mountain to her death, right? She felt that she deserved it. She felt, I think, in a way that dying would have been easier than going on with, like, the knowledge of what she'd done, right? Um, and what she was responsible for with the, the sound of Psyche's tears still ringing in her ears, right? She's not afraid of death. She's eager for death. The idea that she might be Psyche in the sense of being a ritual offering here on this day, that she might die, that's a, that's a, a good, firm thought to lay hold of. That's comforting. Um, but of course, although we see her making the parallel explicitly here, we don't see her seeing, she doesn't know what's going to come. Well, the author does, right? The, the geriatric Orwell does know what's going to come, but she doesn't make the connection. Um, it's going to turn out she's not going to be an offering. She's going to win. And yet, as I was just saying before, I think we could see in a different way she is. Orwell is going to be sacrificed this day, in a sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, she doesn't have anything left to fear, Arjun, just as she said at the very beginning. Yes, exactly. After she severs Argon's femoral artery, not her language, um, that spot in the inner leg that no, you know, that uh, no physician can cure you of, um, people ran to him, but there was no possibility of saving his life. The shouting of the mob dinned in my ears, sounding strange as all things sound when you're in your helmet. I was scarcely out of breath even. Most of my bouts with Bardia had been far longer. Yet I felt of a sudden very weak, and my legs were shaking. And I felt myself changed, too, as if something had been taken away from me. I have often wondered if women feel like that when they lose their virginity. Bardia, the fox close behind him, came running up to me, with tears in his eyes and joy all over his face. Blessed! Blessed, he cried. Queen, warrior, my best scholar. Gods, how prettily you did it. A stroke to remember all one's days. And he raised my left hand to his lips. I wept hard and kept my head well down so he should not see the tears dropping from under my mask. 
but long before I had my voice back, they were all about me, Chunia still on horseback because he could not walk, with praises and thanks, till I was almost pestered with it, though a little sweet sharp prickle of pride thrust up inside me. Um... Yes, and Maureen, I, I, I agree. The, um, the fact that not only has she, is there sort of the sort of parallel that she's making between, um, uh, between losing her virginity, uh, which she never does do, um, and um, killing her first man, um, is, I agree, it, the fact that the man that she kills dies uh, by bleeding effusively between his legs, right, certainly does also uh, uh, conjure up the image, right, of a woman losing her virginity. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> Carrie, I was thinking that too. She made a woman of him. Kind of, well, uh, why should she not... If she, If she should fight like a man? Why should she not make him bleed like a woman? I guess, I mean, like, there's still the uh, I, I don't know. Part of the same pattern in her head? I don't know. Um, yes, they already said he was a coward. He was uh, no doubt accused of womanly feelings, right? Um, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Twice now, we have seen Bardia speak in praise to her, um, come close to a love speech, right? Or as close to a love speech as she was ever to receive. Um, and, but always with a painful qualification or something, right? Here we see Bardia, this speech of his is there's no qualification here, right? Um, blessed, blessed queen, warrior. Um, yeah. Um, her tears, which she does not hold back, which she does not dam up, right? as he raises her left hand to his lips. Um, yes, and I agree. Sweet, sharp prickle of pride uh, is uh, an alliterative phrase that Tolkien would have been proud of. I agree. Um, yes. Um, Jackie, it is very uncomfortable, isn't it? The whole... much about this scene. Um, though again, I, I love this. Like, I'm cheering for her. I'm che I, Bardia makes me so happy when he comes up praising her like this. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and yet, um, queen, warrior. Um, she's feeling like Orwell. She's feeling like a woman. She's thinking about losing virginity. And the man that she loves is just kissing her hand, right? Um, and yes, Scott, we see the mask beginning to do its job, hiding and protecting her and giving her strength. Yes, 
Yes. Um, yeah. Jackie, I agree. Coveting Bardia's love, it's uncomfortable. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse soon. It's going to get worse soon. Um, well, let's actually, let's, 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 let's move on to that. Let's keep going. Um, I had been happy, far happier than I could hope to be again with Psyche and the Fox long ago before our troubles. Now, for the first time in all my life and the last, I was gay. A new world, very bright, seemed to be opening all around me. She talks about how happy she was. She'd been happier, like, defining happy as, like, you know, this sort of deep and abiding happiness, right, that she remembers with Psyche and the Fox. But, but she's never been gay before. Just, like, her life had not been one of gaiety, right? She had never been able to be cheerful. She'd never laughed and had fun in this way, right? Even with Psyche, she was the mom, right? Um... She couldn't, her father prevented her from being cheerful, right? Even if nothing else did, right? Um, yeah. Oh, man. Mary, you are so right to point out. Sorry, I just, Mary pointed out the one other really uncomfortable things. The, I have often wondered if women feel like that when they lose their virginity. That in the context of this interaction with Bardia. Um, yes, yes. It is, as you say, kind of a lot. I agree. Um, but, um, yeah, she's never been exuberant, cheerful um, before. It was, of course, the god's old trick. Blow the bubble up big before you prick it. They pricked it a moment after I had crossed the threshold of my house. A little girl whom I'd never seen before, a slave, came out from some corner where she'd been lurking and whispered in Bardia's ear. He had been very merry up till now. The sunlight went out of his face. Then he came up to me and said half-shamefacedly, Queen, the day's work is over. You'll not need me now. I'll take it very, I'd take it very kindly if you'll let me go home. My wife's taken with her pains. We had thought it could not be so soon. I'd be glad to be with her tonight. I understood in that moment all my father's rages. I love that line. <laughs> Such an understated line. I understood in that moment all my father's rages. Um, it is chilling, isn't it? But she doesn't do it. She's like really kind and generous, right? She even gives a, uh, the most precious ring that she has to give to him to offer to Ungit for the safety of his wife, right? Um... She holds it in, but in that moment she understands her father's rages. Um, his wife is going into labor, is giving birth to another one of her brats, right? Another one of their children. Yeah, yeah. That's certainly what he's referring to. We had thought it could not be so soon. They were anticipating the pains to come, and they have come upon her earlier than he expected. Um... Uh, yeah, um, Sarah, good. Death and birth, yet another thing in Orwell's life to tie these two things together, just like with Psyche's mom. Yep, uh-huh, exactly. Ooh, pricking the bubble that's blown up. Pregnancy, like, just as the gods were pricking the bubble of her happiness, um, 
<laughs> like somewhere Bardia's wife's water is breaking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I see the parallel. I'm, I'm tracking with you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Ambrosius. Oh, yes, I agree. Her, her inward reaction, the understanding of her father's rages and her outward reaction are the difference between Orwell and the queen. The queen gives a queenly response. Right. Um, Orwell is frantic. Um, frantic. Um, and yes, JJ, you're right. As Bardia told her, every soldier feels fear and the trick is not to heed it. So she's learning that she can experience rage and master it. Yes. Yes. That's, she's queen. She can damn that all up, right? And be queen. Um, behind her veil. Um, two more passages and then we're done done with chapter 19 just like I confidently predicted um, we get several accounts again I which I put in the um, category of remarkable honesty on the part of geriatric Orwell who is narrating this story to us, right? Um, I had never seen men at their pleasures before. The gobbling, snatching, belching, hiccuping, the greasiness of it all, the bones thrown on the floor, the dogs quarreling under, under our feet. Were all men such? Would Bardia? Then back came my loneliness. My double loneliness, for Bardia, for Psyche, not separable. The picture, the impossible fool's dream, was that all should have been different from the very beginning, and he would have been my husband, and Psyche our daughter. Then I would have, then I would have been in labor, with Psyche, and to me he would have been running, coming home. But now I discovered the wonderful power of wine. I understand why men become drunkards. For the way it worked on me was not at all that it blotted out these sorrows, but that it made them seem glorious and noble, like sad music, and I, and I somehow great and reverend for feeling them. I was a great, sad queen in a song. I did not check the big tears that rose in my eyes. I enjoyed them. To say all, I was drunk, and I played the fool. Um... <laughs> to say all oh, I was drunk. <laughs> yes. The the come down at the end of that uh, flowery paragraph is really fun. Um uh Yes. Um But notice the fantasy. Notice how she combines the fantasies. Bardia and Psyche. What's the problem with them both? she's separated from them well by the same thing by love by sex by marriage right psyche has a husband now an idea which orwell finds intolerable that the husband is a god and that she feels them drifting apart on two different lands you know drifting away from each other um bardia is mostly in her world Right, his her greatest supporter and um, and support. But then, his wife goes into labor and off he runs. 
Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mary says this book, <laughs> this book is scaring you about having kids. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, Orwell's a strong narrator, right? Very strong narrator. Um, but yes, we do see a return of the theme of the noble sufferer here. Um, it is interesting to see the directions in which Orwell's mind goes when she's in an altered state, when she was in her fever dreams first, during like, right at the time of Psyche's sacrifice, when she was like sleep-deprived and delusional the night before, the night when she was waiting for Psyche to shine the light, um, and having all these morbid fantasies then too about her own funerals and such, and now that when she's drunk, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, I think there's a kind of extra honesty in these altered state fantasies that she has. Honesty in the sense that in those times she's being almost like more transparent with herself about her own desires, right? This fantasy, this impossible fool's dream of Bardia being her husband and Psyche being their daughter. Uh, talking about the connection between um, birth and death, right? Um, uh, she is picturing on the day that she kills her first man that Bardia would be running off to her because she would have been the one pregnant with Psyche and giving birth to Psyche. So she's directly juxtaposing this fantasy of her being Bardia's wife and giving birth to Psyche. Juxtaposing that with this moment of killing Argon. Right? Um... Yes. Mary, I agree that we are seeing escalation in her fantasies. She used to fantasize of Psyche staying with her and of Bardia viewing her as a woman, and this fantasy is something that could never ever happen. Yeah, exactly. Impossible fool's dream. Even the, even the funeral fantasies she was having before were not like, I mean, they weren't impossible. Right now, she's she's um, imagining this completely alternate reality, and I think what's happening here. Yes, this is, um, and Liz, as you say, the womanness is coming right back. <laughs> right, it absolutely is. But no, it's not well. It's not well. Right, um, Orwell the woman in her is being locked up and going a little bit crazy. I mean, like the gap between her like fantasy life and the real world that, that 
divide is growing at the same time that her divide between the Queen and Orowal is growing, at the same time that the infinite distance between herself and Psyche has opened up after the banishment of Psyche, despite the insistence on the parallel between them by the god. Um, yeah, exactly. Lots of change and loss and compartmentalization, Jackie. Exactly right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I do think it's not a coincidence that her fantasies are getting increasingly delusional. Um, she is losing touch with her humanity. her And her humanity is like reacting, <laughs> right? Responding to its imprisonment in these weird ways. Um, think in the Fox's terms, right? Of like the passions on the one hand and reason on the other hand. The queen has reason, right? One way of, another way of thinking, if we think about it from the Fox's lens, in becoming the queen and putting away Orwell, she is advancing in philosophy far beyond what the Fox ever did. That's what should happen. The Fox would applaud that, right? You should not give in to your passions. You should lock them away. You should damn them up. He never can do it at all. He's horrible at it, in fact. But he considers that his weakness, the weakness of his flesh. Um, to be ruled by reason and to do things according to nature, that's what should be. And that's what she's going to do. Right? That's the queen. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. One more. She's still drunk, going back to her bed. This is an amazing paragraph. And so to my fool's bed. What was that? No, no, not a girl crying in the garden. No one, cold, hungry, and banished, was shivering there, longing and not daring to come in. It was the chain swinging at the well. It would be folly to get up and go out and call again, Psyche, Psyche, my only love. I am a great queen. I have killed a man. I am drunk like a man. All warriors drink deep after the battle. Bardia's lips on my hand were like the touch of lightning. All great princes have mistresses or lovers. There's the crying again. No, it's only the buckets at the well. Shut the window, Pooby. To your bed, child. Do you love me, Pooby? Kiss me good night. Good night. The king's dead. He'll never pull my hair again. A straight thrust and then a cut in the leg. That would have killed him. I am the queen. I'll kill Orowal, too. Um. Is this an amazing paragraph? Oh, man. Um. It's the whole progression of it. Um, yes, it reads like a stanza from Eliot's The Wasteland. Yeah, yeah, it kind of does. I think, um, I, I don't know. Uh, it's an, yeah, it, it is a, a, a very modernist kind of paragraph, isn't it? Um, we talked about that compartmentalization, that distance, that estrangement from herself, Right. But always, the sound of the girl crying in the garden. No, no, it's just the chains swinging at the well. It's only the buckets at the well. Shut the window. Shut it out. 
don't listen to it. Um, I am a great queen. I have killed a man. I am drunk like a man. All warriors drink deep after the battle. Bardia's lips on my hand were like the touch of lightning. All great princes have mistresses or lovers. Jackie, are we really uncomfortable now? Right? Um, why shouldn't Bardia love her? Just because Bardia's married? All great princes have mistresses or lovers. Who cares? Do you love me, Pooby? What a weighted question. Right? Is she going to devour poor Pooby? Um, yeah. I mean, Mary, you're right. The way that geriatric Orawal has kind of not only just related, here are the things that I was thinking about when I was drunk. She did that in the previous paragraph, right? But that she goes on to, like, recreate the experience of being drunk. I mean, this makes me feel drunk reading this, right? Um, the way that we are invited to, like, follow her mind as it wanders from idea to idea in this kind of drunken state. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, I agree. She is desperate for Psyche's approval, like the tables have turned Jackie, but that was kind of always the case, too, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you love me? in the context of Psyche, Psyche, my only love, right? Um, what does Orwell do if Pooby doesn't love her, right? Isn't this what happened with Psyche? I mean, there's this uncomfortable parallel, right? Yeah, swinging dangerously from one bad idea to the next, yes, yes. Um, Jocelyn, you're you're so right. So heartbreaking. She uses comparisons to men for her identity. Yes. Yes. Um, and again, this is where we come back to that I'm going to kill the woman in me. Which does in part mean I'm going to act like a man. I'm going to think of myself as masculine. I have killed a man. I am drunk like a man. All warriors drink deep after the battle. All great princes have mistresses or lovers. I should be able to treat Bardia like my father treated his mistresses. Um, yes, but of course it's also just this pure dehumanization of herself as well. Um, the fantasy, the king is dead. A straight thrust and then a cut in the leg that would have killed him, the king, right? Who broke his leg. She didn't kill the king. She fantasizes about having killed the king. I am the queen. I'll kill Orawal too. Oh. Um. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Corey, that's really good. This fantasy is actually reflecting something Orawal said at the very beginning. I wanted to be a wife so that I could have been her real mother. I wanted to be a boy so that she could have been in love with me. Yes. Yeah, it is like that. It is like that. Um. Yeah. Um. Okay, now, next, chapters 20 and 21. Um, we're going to, next time, we're going to read through the end of book one. Um, we've been watching 
the establishment of her new identity as queen. And we've seen the really difficult and painful things tied up with that. Watch what happens next. Next, we're going to get the rest of her life, right? Um, so, uh, how does this all work out? The, all these changes the gods have brought upon her. She's had blessing upon blessing heaped on her, right? But again, I don't think that's how she thinks of these things. How does this all come out? Where does she end up with all of this? So, chapter 20 and 21 next time, through the end of book one, and then we'll get into book two after that. All right? Um, thanks, everybody, for joining me. Uh, to the professor, one more time. As uh, it's technically it's birth it's his birthday where Jocelyn is on the on the west coast. So there you go. So next week, uh, we will see you guys next week on the tenth. Uh, thanks everybody for joining me. Bye now.